This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. And, um, yeah, I was asked to speak about the three poisons. So I automatically also want to include the three antidotes, because found within every poison is an antidote. If you actually eat a little bit of uh, poison oak every day, gradually you become immune to the poison oak. And so um, within these three poisons, which are greed, hatred, and ignorance, lies some antidotes for those. So I'll speak about this. And um, maybe I'll just start with a little poem from Hafiz, who I very much love Hafiz. He's a Persian poet, wild man, extraordinaire. It's called for three days, but we could even call it maybe one hour. But it says, not many teachers in the world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days or maybe even one hour in your closet. That would do. And that means not leaving. You better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches and get yourself a chamber pot. No reading, uh uh-uh, no writing either. That would be cheating. Though the sitting alone is not recommended if you are normally sedated. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. So those are the antidotes, is the ruby buried inside here. And so in traditional Buddhism and Dharma, they sometimes uh, categorize that the three greatest ailments uh, that, that uh, a being experiences is greed, hatred, and ignorance. So in the teachings in Theravada Buddhism are very psychological. So it points to these, uh, sometimes known as the three poisons of greed, hatred, and ignorance, and actually, there's a very poetic phrases to this in saying that there's no fire hotter than greed, no ice colder than hatred, and no fog thicker than ignorance. So ignorance is this quality of not seeing clearly into the nature of things. And they're called poisons, impediments, obstructions, because they are what fuels suffering. And living within this life of of, um, seeing the world through these aspects of greed, hatred, ignorance, fuels suffering. And I'd actually like to um, read to you a very um, powerful quote from the Buddha, and it's actually a translation from Achan Amaro, who's an English monk. And uh, it speaks about the causes of suffering. But maybe a little background before I get to that. And so the background is, is that, I think some of you may know this, of course, um, 
that Siddhartha Gautama, who later became the Buddha, he was brought up in a palace. He was a prince destined to become a great king. And at the age of 29, he encountered what's known as the heavenly messengers. And uh, it's an interesting term, heavenly messengers, because maybe at first they don't sound so heavenly, because it was if for the first time in his life he awakened to the realities, the inescapable, inevitable realities, when he went outside of the palace and really began to see about life, that the inevitable realities that one cannot escape from aging, illness, and death. And they're called messengers because they awaken within one, knowing that it's, it's, this is not going to last. And in some ways in Pali, there's a word called samwega, which means when you come to understand that things are not going to last, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. What is this life? What is the truth of things? So that's why they're called heavenly messengers, because they awaken us. And of course, the fourth heavenly messenger is that Siddhartha happened to see someone very different that he never saw before in his life. He saw this monk or an ascetic, a holy person going by, and this person had a completely different vibe, if you will, than the regular people that he had met. And like, who is this person? And to find out that this person was dedicated towards awakening, towards truth, and then realizing, this is what I must do. So he too left the palace, renounced the kingdomship that he was destined to inherit, And for seven different years, he traveled and studied from teacher to teacher to teacher to teacher. And at that time, the most common form of meditative practice was concentration, was absorption. And he was an excellent student and mastered these uh, practices. And he mastered them so in such a way that many of the teachers said, all right, you've learned everything I've learned. Come and sit next to me. You can teach too. And uh, Siddhartha declined because he still felt he was able to calm his mind into a profound stillness, into a profound absorption, but still felt inside his heart that he still didn't understand about suffering. No doubt he could suppress and feel calm and tranquil, but that understanding still wasn't there. And so he'd heard that actually punishing the body was the way to go, self-mortification. And so he practiced with five other ascetics, very severe practices of self-mortification. And he reduced his food intake to one grain of rice a day. And when it got to the point when he put his hand on his belly and felt his tailbone, and he was in just about collapse, he realized the futility of punishing the body and decided to leave the ascetics to take care of his health to feed himself, to nourish himself, and get himself back into uh, health. And after taking care of himself for some time, he came across a very beautiful tree. And he looked at this tree and he felt to himself, you know, I've traveled for seven years or so. I've traveled, seen so many different teachers and teachings And I'm just realizing now there's no other teacher to go to, no other teaching to experience, and that I'm going to go and sit underneath this tree, and I'm going to resolve myself to stay here. There's nowhere else to go. 
and I'm going to just stay here and practice. So he took that internal, deep resolve. And it said that um, as he began his practice, uh, there was a memory that he recalled many years earlier when he was a, a boy. And he was, um, it was a beautiful day. He was sitting in nature underneath another tree. And um, it was just one of these days. It was just so exquisite. We get a lot of these days in Northern California. Just this exquisite sense of uh, just the right temperature and the colors and just, it's just a, so he's just appreciating the beauty of this moment and the beauty of the scenery and so forth. And then he happened to look over to the side to where there was a, a field, a farmer's field, and there was a couple of farmers here with some oxen and with some plows, and they were just beginning to break the soils to plant seeds. And perhaps because his sensitivity was very heightened, Hard to say what happened, why, what, this, why, what arose in him, but because of the sensitivity, as the plows began to go into the earth, with his sensitivity very heightened, he almost just had that sense of hearing the cries of the worms being split open. And it was just this powerful moment, because in one sense, the tranquility, the beauty, the connectedness that he felt with all of life and then this realm of sorrow arose within him, this cutting of the worms open. And this recollection is said really caused a major shift in his meditation practice. As I mentioned, up to that time the practices most commonly were of absorption, one-pointedness. And he gathered his concentration. Instead of going totally and completely into absorption, he began to be, perhaps it was because of this, the sense of the worms in this experience of change, he focused his, he shifted his attention from absorption to experiencing this ever-changing nature of things, the transience, impermanence, the ephemeral nature of things. And because of this, just this profound little shift of attention, this catapulted him into a sense of deep um, realizations. Gradually they unfolded. There's a whole story of him at with Mara, who's the tempter that's coming to prevent him from awakening. And I won't go into that whole story, but in the end, he awakened with deep understandings about life. And sometimes they're called the Four Noble Truths. And to me, it's like four just very powerful realizations about life. The realization of the inevitability of suffering, its causes, and that if you eliminate the causes, you can uh, eliminate suffering and that's applied by this eightfold path. How to live our lives in such a way bringing us towards greater freedom, cultivating our sense of virtue, ethics, 
living with integrity that helps to settle the mind and the body, that helps to produce deeper insight, understanding, wisdom. In regards to the three poisons, I want to speak about the causes. And to me, psychologically speaking, the causes of suffering are really important for us to understand. And these, of course, are fueled by craving that is built upon unawareness or ignorance. So again, these are these poisons. So Achin Amaro... I said earlier, finally getting to it. So this is his rendering of um, the cause of suffering. He says that this is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and it is craving. It is craving that is compelling and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever-seeking delight now here and now there. Namely, the, cry, the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. That's a very powerful rendering. Has anybody ever experienced craving that is compelling and intoxicating? <laughs> it was happening just in my meditation 20 minutes ago. Causing us to be born into things again and again that compel that intoxicating, it's, it takes us over. The craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, the craving to feel nothing. So I'd like to just um, speak about that. And I want to just say first that Underneath the craving, the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be someone, to be something, the craving to feel nothing, underneath what fuels these cravings is ignorance, is unawareness. This is very important for us to understand. Actually, even the word Buddha means the awakened one, so it's breaking free of of this uh, ignorance. My teacher, Tampu Lucero, a Burmese forest monk, said that midnight is dark. The dark of the forest is very dark, but darkest of all is ignorance. Darkest of all is ignorance. And so with ignorance and not seeing clearly, it catapults us into this wheel of reactivity in the Dharma sometimes is called dependent origination. It's this whole cycle that when we're not seeing clearly, it gives rise to sensations, to feeling, gives rise to reactivity, to grasping, and so forth. But the Sero used to say that you can begin, if you, you can break this cycle, that if you know about the cycle of suffering, it can break. But if you don't know, you will go around and around. So the emphasis is on the knowing. If you become aware, if you see clearly into the nature of things, you can begin to break the cycle of suffering. So I'd like to just maybe explain a little bit more about this craving that the Buddha talked about, the craving for sensual delight, the craving 
to be something, the craving to fill nothing. And it's very interesting if you even just look at the nature of desire. And I also want to say that it's not necessarily I want to come across as, as being heavily morally wrong, but it's just simply the cause of suffering. If we take a look at desire, it keeps you wanting, wanting what you don't have. So just think about that. Keeps you in a state of wanting, wanting what you can't quite get. So that kind of creates a little bit of not so much ease within the body and mind. Keeps you wanting desire, wanting what you don't possess, what you don't have. But it's interesting about the word desire, and actually I looked it up and it has its connection, roots in Latin, to the word desidere which means the longing, the belonging to the stars. There's some type of connection, like there's a longing for that connection. But perhaps the suffering is the misconception with the belief that it's somehow outside of us, that I have to get it outside of me to become whole, rather than perhaps looking inside. And so... Looking at these causes, sensual delight of craving and the craving for sensual delight, we can say, speak about this as, as like eros, or the libidinal instinct. It's just wanting to feel good. We find this wanting to feel good in many ways through food, sex, work, lots of different ways. I, I'm always... Um, kind of make fun of Amazon because they have the one-click. It's like a one-click little rush of happiness. Now you own it. One-click. It's a sensual delight. Doesn't it feel kind of good that one-click, you got it? But it doesn't last long. You have to click again to get that little jolt of adrenaline or rush or happiness. I remember one time eating some vegan ice cream. It was my favorite ice cream. And I was in the world of just ecstasy, just lost my sense of self and just experiencing just the joy of the taste of the ice cream and eating. And then all of a sudden I noticed there was just one bite left. (laughs) Then I thought to myself, what the hell am I going to do? And then I thought, well, I'll go get another bowl, (laughs) which I did not do. But it was amazing, like, to, like, like falling out of heaven, leaving the Garden of Eden. And then I was like, what am I going to do in my life? There was a moment of existential deep despair. What am I going to do? Because it's somehow this belief that I've carried that when I eat this, I feel so good. But because it's outside of me, it doesn't last. No matter what it is I look outside of me for my pleasures, they go away like sand or like water in, in my hands. So there's a belief perhaps that I carry that somehow that outside of me is what makes me whole rather than looking inside me. This way Hafiz is pointing, there's a ruby buried inside here, but I've forgotten that or I don't know that. So perhaps we can add on the, the Rolling Stones song of that I just can't get no satisfaction with this craving for sensual delight. So even Kabir says in this, he goes, friend, please tell me what you can do about this world that I held on to, and it keeps spinning out. 
I gave up sewn clothes and I wore a robe. But I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap. But I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discovered I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still often holds on to one other thing. So this poem can go on for a very long time. The second craving is this craving to be somebody. This is a big one for many of us. We have a belief that somehow that I need you to verify how special I am to be whole. I, 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 I. And, you know, during the day, we can put on all these different things, like, you know, I do this, I do that, who I am is what it is that I do. And all a trap of leaving ourselves, as a country western song would sing, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. But I have this belief that somehow that you make me whole as a human being. And living in that way I leave myself all the time trying to find my happiness from you. So this is a, a, an area that for many of us we can get caught. I've been caught in this for many years at various points in my life. It's craving to be someone. And actually when you think about it, everyone's already taken anyways. Why can't we just be ourselves? Everyone is already taken. And the last one, this craving to feel nothing. And, um, you know, personally, I hadn't related to that for quite a period of time till maybe about eight, nine years ago. There was a situation at home where there was a possibility that my son had lymphoma. Fortunately, he didn't. Fortunately, he had mono, and I have to say now I love mono compared to lymphoma. And, uh, but during that time, I was actually teaching a meditation retreat for a period of that time while we were in the world of not knowing before we found out that it was mono and not lymphoma. And I noticed um, during this retreat, I'd be awake to practice, to teach, but as soon as I was done, I would immediately go to my room, I would get under my covers, and I would just go to sleep. All I wanted to do was sleep, 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 sleep. And then all of a sudden, I was preparing a Dharma talk, and I'm speaking about the, the craving to feel nothing, and then it's like, bong, like, hit my head against the wall, like, oh my gosh, that's me. I was going, I just did not want to feel it, and when I woke up, I'd be okay for about third of a second, and then that prevailing feeling of dread and heaviness. What about my son? What's going to happen? And, and I just want to go to sleep. And I began to realize how much of my life I've actually, um, interesting that I didn't relate to that craving to feel nothing, to only realize that, that that was a big part of my life, of how much I would want to lose myself in so many things, so I just don't want to have to feel.
I've actually sat with my lust, my passion. And where does it often take me? It takes me directly back into the womb where I don't have to feel anything. Like, what is that drive? And that drive is to feel, for me, at times, nothing. You know, it's pretty nice back in the womb. You know, you're fed, it's warm, it's juicy, it's this and that. But to feel nothing. I guess I was feeling something. So it's kind of combined with sensual delight. But there's this quality of just losing myself in it so I don't have to be me. Don't have to be here. How much of the time do we find ourselves in our lives losing ourselves into something so we just don't have to feel Simon and Garfunkel, they wrote a song of, um, well, the words are, I I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. So that's kind of my theme song for the craving to feel nothing. These are very powerful cravings that... um, occupy ourselves at times, all rooted in this belief of some type of a deficiency or that we're not enough and that there's something outside of us to make us whole. So the practice before us is to awaken. And I was, you know, just very... um, I don't know what even the right word is, just struck with these powerful realizations that the Buddha experienced underneath the tree of awakening, the Bodhi tree, and these realizations of suffering and its causes, and particularly this articulation of the cravings of sensual delight, the cravings to be someone, the cravings to feel nothing, and how much that they related to my own life. And how that these practices of mindfulness and awareness helps us see more clearly into the nature of things that potentially we can begin to grow with deeper freedom, with deeper wisdom, with deeper compassion. So I'd like to speak about some of the antidotes to greed, hatred, and ignorance. And again, those powerful um, phrases that there's no fire hotter than greed. No ice colder than hatred. No fog thicker than ignorance. And um, just to share that um, in my uh, studies with the Burmese monks, and as Sharon said, I, I lived in the monastery for eight and a half years, and I studied with um, my primary teacher, Lang Ditsyado, for 25 years till he died at the age of 98. And my other primary teacher was Tanquilucero. And in his um, teachings, he was from Burma, and he came to the United States four times. And, and each time he came, he offered a group of teachings for us. And so I'd like to just share a little brief bit about that. And this leads to the antidotes. So in the first time that he came, he gave a a tremendous amount of teachings on the foundations of mindfulness. 
And the second time, he, he's particularly interested in the 32 parts of the body meditation. You may not have heard of this meditation. There's a very powerful practice of working with the body, 20 solid parts, 12 liquid parts, and penetrating into the body, into the nature of the body. And the third time, <laughs> he concentrated on this teaching of what's called living with the many. It's found in the path of purification, the Vasudhi Maga. And for 81 straight nights, the Siyadho gave 81 different talks on the 81 different families of organisms that live on the body. And, um, and we would have to memorize by heart uh, in Burmese um, this reframe that was always at the end of each of the Dharma talks. And in Burmese it goes, Po aim po za po do ikanda go i do i thodam thinjain pit i. And what that means is that these organisms live in the body, they eat of the body, they defecate and they urinate, and then they copulate and they have offsprings and then they grow up and they grow old and then they get sick and then they die and thus your body is a cemetery. Then he'd go off to the next group of, of organisms. This is called living with the many. <laughs> but actually when you think about it, so this was written you know, many, some thousands of years ago by Buddha Gosa on the living with the many, but yeah, actually, human uh, the research in these days speaks about the human being actually as a human biome. And there's actually about, we're about 10% human and 90% organisms that exist within the body. And, uh, you know, in one quarter, you know, one square inch on the skin lives 32 million bacteria. And so um, we are indeed living with the many. And hopefully in harmony so that we can continue living. Anybody want dinner now? <laughs> they're having dinner on us we might as well have dinner too and um, so anyways Asero gave these uh, very powerful teachings on these 81 families of organisms of course there's many more than 81 so he's an interesting character from the foundations of mindfulness to body parts to organisms living in the body but his last um, group of teachings which he spent for three months during the rainy season offering to us every day. And these teachings took years for me to understand. They were incredibly simple teachings, but I would kind of wonder to myself, what, what, what's with these teachings? Because let, let's get to the more, you know, developed meditation practices with the foundations of mindfulness and the body parts and so forth. But this was the teaching in, in, in Burmese called Ragakine, Dodakine, Mohakine. And what these teachings were incredibly simple. But he would have us just be mindful of the breath and just have us experience as we breathe in and breathe out that there's no craving existing with this breath in and this breath out. And then the next group of breaths to breathe in and breathe out and experiencing no hatred. And then the last reflection of breathing in and breathing out, that in these moments of breathing in and out, no delusion, no ignorance. And he would talk about this practice as one that would be very good to die with. But I also look at it as a practice 
that we can actually have an experience of of awakening. A brief moment of enlightenment, as we we'll call it, even. So when we think about the enlightened beings, which are called in Pali the Arahants, it means the destroyer of the enemies. And what enemies? Greed, hatred, and ignorance. Loba dodha moha. Greed, hatred, and ignorance. These are the three poisons that obstruct our peace. Where do these greed, hatred, and ignorance lie? They lie in what we see, what we smell, what we taste, what we hear, what we feel, and what we think in the mind and the body, or the, and the thoughts and emotions. And so the arahants, the destroyers of the enemies, are the ones that have completely eradicated greed, hatred, and ignorance in our five senses and in our mind and our thoughts and emotions. But this practice can momentarily allow us to have an experience of becoming free of the veils of greed, hatred, and ignorance when we do a practice like this. And it, it took me years, like, why was he teaching this? This is his last teaching he ever taught us. And I've come through the years of so deeply appreciating this very simple and this very profound teaching of breathing in and breathing out, and in these moments, experiencing no greed. But actually, too, if you look at it, when there's no greed arising in the mind, in the heart, in its place, what arises is a sense of contentment and ease. Money cannot buy contentment. Contentment is supreme for ease of being. So breathing in and breathing out, and in these moments, being free of any wanting, the relinquishing of wanting, the relinquishing of craving, and in its place, the experience of contentment and ease. And breathing in and breathing out, and in these moments, the absence of hatred, aversion, ill will, not liking, not wanting, and in its place. Also supporting contentment and ease, but also the open heart. Breathing in and breathing out, experiencing the clarity of mind and heart, this understanding of the causes of suffering in its path to its end, the relinquishing of greed, the relinquishing of hatred, the clarity of the knowing, the dispelling of all ignorance. So there we find right inside the greed, hatred, and ignorance is the antidotes to greed, hatred, and ignorance through the relinquishing of greed, of craving, in its place is contentment. The relinquishing of hatred in its place is open-heartedness. The relinquishing of ignorance, unawareness, not seeing clearly, is seeing clearly into the nature of things, into the causes of suffering, its path to great freedom. This is the antidote. Right inside the poisons is the antidote. So let's sit and practice with this for a few minutes.
And it gives us a sense. Sometimes we think enlightenment, oh, you know, as Mary Oliver says, if, you know, you don't have to walk 500 miles in your, on your knees repenting. Like we think sometimes this enlightenment is so far away, I'm never going to be able to experience it. Maybe it's going to be 10,000 lives from now. Maybe if I'm a good enough person, it'll happen. But what about right now? We could just taste it for a few moments. If indeed the Arahant is the one that has relinquished greed, hate, and ignorance, and they can, of course, maintain this for, they've eradicated it, but we can experience it temporarily. We can have a taste of freedom, of the awakened, wise, and compassionate heart. So as we breathe in and breathe out, what would it be like in these few moments of breathing in and out that there can be a relinquishing of any types of wanting? That we're okay just as it is. And not only okay, that we can even invite in. Or as the relinquishing of the wanting falls away, in its place rises contentment and ease. This is the fruition of the falling away of craving. It's place of contentment and ease. So just breathing it in and breathing it out. The relinquishing of craving and in its place, the experiencing of contentment and ease in these breaths. That there's nothing that we have to get, just as we are, opening to a place of contentment and ease as the craving, the desiring for anything to be different, just falling away in its place, contentment and ease, breathing in and out. And breathing in and breathing out and experiencing now this relinquishing of not wanting, of hatred, aversion. Just in these few breaths, allowing yourself just to experience this relinquishing, the falling away of any feelings of wanting to push something away, not wanting it to be here. And in its place arises just the open heart, that's contented, just as it is. It's receptive, it's open. There's a friendliness.
So breathing in and breathing out, that sense of contentment and ease, a sense of friendliness and open-heartedness as the craving falls away, the hatred, the aversion falls away in its place, ease, contentment, in an open heart. And as we breathe in and breathe out, this clarity of knowing, there's no ignorance here now, It's a deeper understanding of the causes of suffering, this craving, this aversion, and the understanding of the relinquishing of it in the experience of contentment and ease, open-heartedness. This is wisdom, dispelling of not seeing clearly, understanding these causes of suffering. Experiencing some freedom as you breathe in and out, contented, with open heart, knowing clearly what's here. These are the liberative teachings of the Dharma. Breaking free gradually in times of our stories and self-definitions that have enslaved us. Experiencing deeper peace, deeper understanding, this freedom that comes about through the relinquishing of craving, the relinquishing of hatred, the relinquishing of ignorance, and in its place, the antidotes of contentment, open-heartedness, clear seeing, and wisdom. These are the teachings of the Dharma. May all beings experience contentment and ease, open-heartedness and love, and to seeing clearly into the nature of things growing in deep wisdom, may all beings be at peace. (laughs) It's raining.
<laughs> Even the sky is crying over that one. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.